if you look historically at the best returns of any VC general partners in history, it is always the operators that do the best. And the big difference between what we do at Atomic versus a normal venture fund is instead of spending time interviewing founders and assessing pitches and looking at decks, we just spend time building. Welcome to Zipsy Spotlight. I'm Kaz, co-founder of Zipsy, a design and investment firm that supports startup founders with brand building expertise. In this series, we'll be exploring new form of venture capital, interviewing four leading founders and capital allocators in the venture ecosystem, sharing their insights on what the future of venture capital look like. And today, we're excited to have Healy, Chief Operating Officer and a partner at Atomic, an industry-leading venture studio behind a number of fast-growing companies, including Hims and Hers, Bungalow, OpenStore, and Boompop. One of the quotes I love from Atomic is, great startups are built, not discovered. Unlike traditional venture capital firms, which focus on most of their efforts on sourcing good startups, Atomic builds startups themselves and only invests in the companies they built. I'm excited today not only because Healy is working to develop Atomic's venture studio model, but also because he himself is the founder of Boompop, one of the companies incubated by Atomic. Let's deep dive in. We're a co-host. I'm Kaz. I'm Kevin. Healy begins with his background starting from his time in Nebraska and Riyadh, leading us through his experiences at Warden, the corporate world, and the unpredictable landscape of startups. I'm from Nebraska. I grew up in, in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia for 16 years, came back to the States. Then I got into my dream school, which was Penn and, and specifically Warden in Philadelphia. Shortly leaving Warden, I joined a consulting firm in New York. And, and honestly, it was a wonderful training ground. I really learned a lot about just fundamentals, not just how to model, how to project, but how do you speak business? How do you speak to executives? How do you put Lego block information together so executives can really understand it? The global financial crisis hit. I felt trapped there, honestly, but I was just happy to add a job. My then girlfriend, now wife and mother of my children, my life partner, Rachel, got into a master's program at Berkeley. And I was trying to make my way up to the Bay Area. I was applying to Google and the Facebook, all the places I thought you're supposed to apply to because I was following this known path of climb up the corporate ladder and you'll eventually be CEO somewhere. I called up one of my good friends from college, a guy named Jack Abraham. And he said, hey, I'm running this company. It's called Milo. I need a VP of BizDev to come in and help me with partnerships more broadly and a lot of the strategic stuff we're doing to help to hire out the team, like a number two person to help with the company. I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, here's the opportunity. He goes, why would you do that? He goes, that's so risky. You don't know how much money to make. I'm not even making money. He goes, that sounds crazy. Long story short, I joined and five months later, we're in conversations with eBay about M&A and seven months after I joined, we sell the company and it changed my life. I had $34 in my bank account. We could get married now because I could afford a wedding, which I was eternally grateful for. I got addicted and I realized that this incredible, non-linear, very risky path of starting a startup was the path for me. It was the octane level that I wanted. It was the type of accelerated learning and impact and upside that you could get. I stayed out at eBay for a little bit as the chief of staff to the CTO. I convinced him and the CEO. I said, hey, I want to start a new division here called the Retail Innovation Division, where we're going to take your entire thesis of everything you brought together, eBay and PayPal at the time and Magento and GSI Commerce, all you know, Red Laser, all these kind of properties. Let's create proof points on why it's a great thesis. I thought that I had a really interesting angle on how the future of stores is going to evolve. So I left eBay. I started my first startup on my own. So my second startup overall, 
within a few weeks was able to get a little over $4 million of seed capital. One of my very close friends had become a, a general partner at a wonderful VC firm. We wanted to work together on this. And, and we started off by building, of all things, it was an interactive mirror designed for fitting rooms in fashion stores called Oak. And it was cool. Honestly, we were 12 to 13 years too early, actually. They're just rolling out now, and this was back in 2015. But the way it worked is you'd walk into a fitting room. If you look at the proxy of conversion photos online, it's a very similar conversion funnel in physical stores. We just found that fitting rooms were both the highest conversion place in store and the worst NPS. You're waiting around. You can't find someone to ask for another size of pants. It was just like this wild experience. We built a mirror that when you walked in, came alive. You could adjust the lighting. You could ask for help and make recommendations on what sizes, cuts, and colors that you could ask for intended. And so we launched it. The product goes great to start. 18 months in, it's in a death spiral. Retail was the wrong segment to target. My investors backed out. My biggest client wouldn't talk anymore because they're closing all their stores. This is what I call the valley of death. I had to go to my entire team. It was 15 people at the time. I said, if you want to find another job, no problem. I will help you to find the best job I possibly can. And I love you and I support you. We've been through a lot. However, if you are willing to stay, then my wife and I will pay minimum wage for as long as we can. And I understand minimum wage is really hard in San Francisco. We have one shot on goal. And the craziest thing when I think about this, the entire team stayed, every single person. And we turned it around. We grew up by 300 and something percent. We had five acquisition offers within six months and we sold. Uh, it was wonderful. That deal, interestingly enough, was selling to a company at the time, which was the largest company that made those interactive ordering kiosks in the US. And you see those touchscreen kiosks where you order food. Zyvelo did all of those. The founder said, look, I, I want to acquire you. I've wanted to have software as part of the equation. You're obviously a very talented software design team. You're very talented at sales. But Healy, I want you to be the CEO. I want you to help me to sell this thing. I said, okay, I can do that. So I came in and it was a different league. We were making good money. We're like eight digits revenue, EBITDA, 75 person team. I came in with this idea, hey, I'm going to turn this thing around. Great team of folks. So I restructured a ton of parts of the organization, like introduce recurring revenue, introduce warranty, introduce software, restructured the sales team, brought in new leaders. And, and long story short, 15 months later, we sold to Verifone, owned by Francisco Partners, largest payments company. It was a wonderful deal. It was a great outcome for everybody. Honestly, at that point in life, I was set free. So I was trying to figure out what to do in life. Do I get back into the, the startup scene? So again, my great friend, Jack, and I had been talking. He said, why don't you come join me? Come on at Atomic, come in as a partner, be my COO and help me to scale the platform. That was about three and a half years ago. Since I've been at Atomic, when I joined, we were a staff of 25, around 200 million total assets under management. We had 14 companies. We've spent a bunch of time now growing the team, the practice, the discipline. We've now closed two funds since then, so we're a little over, a little under 800 million. The platform team is now in the 70s, and we have 40 something companies. So we've one of those companies is my baby, which is Boom Pop, which of course I'd love to tell you about. Next up, Healy shares insights about Atomic's unique venture studio approach and how it differs from traditional venture funds. He will also share his dedication to fostering corporate community and connection, highlighting the importance of people in the business landscape. Atomic is a venture studio, which means we are a traditional LPGP, limited partner, general partner, 
fund structure. We have great LPs and the partners who manage the allocation of capital. And the big difference between what we do at Atomic as a venture studio versus a normal venture fund is instead of spending time interviewing founders and assessing pitches and looking at decks and writing investment memos, we just spend time building. So all of our companies are started out of Atomic. They start one of two ways. It's either a person first or an idea first. And we do all the initial seed funding for the most part. We do a bunch of de-risking, thesis building, the product building. We are a team of operators, not a team of investors. And the reason I love that as a general thing to say is if you look historically at the best returns of any VC general partners in history, it is always the operators that do the best. So Atomic, unlike a normal venture fund, which by the way, I'm not trying to be disparaging at all. I'm just trying to show a contrast here is we are effectively co-founders with you. We're in the trenches with you. We're making every decision, every nuance, every pixel, every model, we're with it with you. At Atomic, I do some normal venture stuff you'd imagine, like I'm on boards and I help the CEOs out with whatever they're going through. Could be hiring executive talent, could be strategy questions, could be fundraising. Then I brand myself as the CEO's board member because I know as a CEO what I want out of a board member. I try to emulate that. If you're raising, I'm in it and I'm in the deck and I'm helping with the narrative and I'm helping you think it through. Or if you are about to hire someone, I'm, I'm writing the JD with you and I'm talking about why it matters and how you ma- make sure you manage cultures to scale. I manage the, the high level operations, things like the P&L, the internal meetings, the team communication. It's, it's a bunch of stuff you have to manage at the org. I also oversee the majority of our zero to one team. We have a wonderful group of principals and VPs that are just maniacs in the best way. All they're doing every day is they're getting together, they're thinking of companies, they're writing investment theses, they're testing things out, they're building a product, they're talking to customers, just making sure that they're on track, they have what they need. That's the atomic side. It's a ton of fun. And then Boom Pop is a passion project for me because one of the things that I just mentioned that I've, is that people are the most important assets of any company, period. If you are a full software company, yes, for sure. But we all know that software decays. You need people behind the scenes making those decisions, being culture champions, being customer champions. So knowing that and my affinity towards work, we spend what, a third of our life at work at least and a third of it asleep. But the majority of our day we're up and I realized all my friends, my close friends are people I used to work with. And so when the world went remote at Atomic, it was clear to me that it was not going to change and we would be distributed moving forward. But it was going to put to test our ability to maintain that feeling of connectivity and togetherness. So in panic, what we first started to do, we found all these virtual experiences where you'd have a professional host who would take you through a Zoom experience. It could be a wine sommelier sends wine to everyone in your wine tasting in your rooms. It's fun. He's showing you the map of Italy, what region of Italy it came from, or maybe it's a magician who's doing like a Christmas magic show for the kids, or it's like a game show we made for the leaderships, whatever it is. We did this. It started ripping around the portfolio. Everyone loved it. And so boom, pop actually started as a company called Boombox initially. It was a virtual events marketplace. We could go and find these wonderful hosted virtual experiences. I remember I emailed 150 friends and said, hey, any interest in this marketplace? Here's a link. First month, we did 48,000 in sales. I was like, wow. Second month, we did 72,000. Third month, we did 110,000. And you fast forward to the ending of our first year, we had brought 60,000 people together. We had 2,500 corporate logos our NPS was better than Apple's. We did a little over $6 million to TTV that first year. It was great. Then we, we turned the corner to 22 and we raised our Series A from my good friends over at Acme, formerly Sherpa Capital. They were early into Airbnb, SpaceX, Uber. I met them, by the way, because they had passed on investing at Oak earlier. 
but I maintained a relationship because I, I loved it. They're so fun. And all of our customers started saying the same thing. They said, virtual stuff is great, but gosh, the world's opening up. We need to get together. The challenge for us is we don't have anywhere to go anymore. Like offices are gone. We dished our leases and everyone's all over. So we need help organizing offsites and events, both for our teams and for our clients. But it turns out now that we're just giving this blind budget to all of our like engineering managers and VPs of design, they have no idea what to do. So they're wasting time finding out the hard way that to plan an event, if you want to book over 10 hotel room nights, you got to call the hotel. You got to email the salesperson. RFPs are part of it if you're an engineering manager having to talk to someone on the phone about making a booking. And so they said, can you help us to start planning these really wonderful events and give us a software tool to do that? And initially my answer was like, no way. That seems really hard <laughs> because it is hard. And then I started to see all these really interesting data signals that made me a little more excited about it. The first was office space, office occupancy is now at roughly 48% of what it was pre-pandemic. There is more money in outer space that used to be like office rent than most industries combined. It's like $1.5 trillion a year is up for grabs. All that money is funneling. I noticed these big companies like Airbnb, Shopify, Instacart, Reddit, we're hiring out internal event teams now, which felt crazy to me, just to help with this problem. And then finally, we, we surveyed all of our customers and said, look, how helpful would this be? Where, where are you going to put your savings from office space? And would it be helpful if you helped out with events? And they said, look, 70% of our savings is going to go towards events. 30% was keeping the balance sheet for a longer runway. So yes, we need the help. Perhaps begrudgingly, we started a next-gen travel company with the goal of making it as easy to plan an amazing corporate event as buying items in e-com. Today, we have a little over 5,000 clients. We brought a little over 150,000 people together. We do more sales in a quarter than we did our full first year with virtual events. When we started, there's a B2B approach here that I think is a pattern that I, I tend to, to believe is one that works. It's not the only one that works, but it does work, which is you find a problem and you stand up a manual operation. So we stood up 10 event planners around North America. And we said, your job is to service the customer, understand who's the customer, what are the main pain points? And how do we reach them efficiently? We figured that out. Then we said, okay, what are all the possible things, all the features you would need to make this full process seamless? We broke it all down. We measured how hard it is, the impact, the KPI. And we said, okay, we're going to productize it. And progressively, you're going to get to a place where this entire thing is productized. So we can say, now it's up to you. You can continue to work with our event planning team with software or here are the keys. You can plan your entire own event e-com style. That's where we're going. And it's super exciting. Our net revenue went from single digits initially and our gross margins were awful, like mid fifties. Now we're at 15% net revenue and our gross margins are low seventies. We're about to dive deep into the DNA of Atomic, but where does Healy believe the true value of a company lies? Atomic is a bit of a black box. We intentionally don't share a lot of how we work. I think the studio model is exceptionally hard to nail. And I do think that Jack, to his credit, and Atomic, to the team's credit, is doing really well as an organization and how we're thinking about it. We have incredible people. And, and this, again, goes to my boom pop story, goes to every other startup I've done. Every company is in the people business. And the sooner they realize that, the more successful they are. And so that is a massive thing that Atomic indexes on, is finding amazing people. I would argue that if you were just to meet the Atomic team members, come for whatever times when we all get together. They're like, oh my gosh, everyone is so smart. 
so high octane, so ambitious, so kind, so low ego, has such great ideas. The people are truly amazing. And then the question becomes, okay, how do you attract and retain good people then if that's the case? I could say the usual autonomy, mastery, purpose thing, whatever. But I think the actual answer is you hire amazing people, you incentivize them well, and then you get out of their way and you just support them. Our job is to give them cheat codes and to give them shortcuts and to leapfrog their evolution as a company or as a business idea through all the tools and the know-how and the centralized knowledge base and the connections we have. That's our job, to make Atomic the best place on the planet to build a company full stop for anyone. All studios are created differently. I think not all studios can provide capital. And, and, and I always do question that model where it's, you're taking, assumably, some sort of compensation for providing services, but you have to really point to those services being super successful. We've obviously concluded at a model that we think makes the most sense. I do think it works. That comes down to what are you optimizing for too? The one thing I will say about Atomic is obviously I'm being a little vague here. But the currency at Atomic is time. That's the currency. And I love that. One of the things that Jack believes, in addition to what I mentioned, like this broader principle of you get amazing people and you give them freedom to operate, is you have limited shots on goal in your life, limited time in the height of your career. I think about that all the time. I always tell my head, this is part of my like X amount of good years I've got left. And there's a point where I'm not going to be able to put that in. I'm not going to have the same energy. And so during those years, how do you make that the highest leverage years of your life? What do you do? And if you can, for example, spend a limited amount of capital and find a true negative, not a false negative, but this is truly not a good idea. How do you handle that as an organization? We celebrate it. You did an awesome job. You put your all into it. We definitively found out this is not the opportunity we thought it was. Great job. Shut it down. Take two weeks off. Come back again. And so I think there's that mindset which can really help, which I think is something that, that Atomic has embodied as well. Up next, Healy will share more details about the highs and lows of starting a business, as well as his advice for first-time founders. The mindset advice is whenever someone comes to me and says, hey, I want to start a company, I say, don't do it. No, no. I want to be an entrepreneur. It looks so awesome. I go, no way. Don't do it. And if a third time they go, no, you don't understand, I'm going to do this no matter what it takes. And they have that force of nature aspect. Then I go, okay, maybe you should go for it. How can I help? Your mental model has to be one of such tremendous resilience, such an ability yourself to nail your conviction and not need outside kind of reinforcement. You have to have that. I would say that it is such a complicated job. It's very hard. It's not for the faint of heart. And frankly, you don't have to do it. There's many other great jobs that pay well. But if you want to go for it, you have to know what you're signing up for. Know that the highs will be very high. The lows will be very low. It'll be more of those throughout the course of the day than throughout the course of the week and then eventually throughout the course of the year. But that's what it feels like. The second is, I think people tend to fall in love with their own idea. They get this, I call it armchair anthropology. We're like, you're observing the world. This is a problem I need to solve. And you start building that product. That's the product first approach. And I think people under index on the fact that you don't necessarily need a product to find product market fit. You with very little spend and very minimal amounts of effort can figure out definitively whether or not this is a good idea and if you can effectively scale on distribution channels, which includes not just testing on distribution, but it also includes doing back of the envelope math. As an example, if you have a, a market size, like there's a reason that venture capital firms always ask for the market size of something. The reason is that if it's not big enough, it is going to become exponentially more expensive to grow your top line in that industry. 
there's a general rule of thumb that around five to 7% saturation, it becomes really hard and really expensive for you to reach a big company of enduring meaning and value and to, and to grow your growth beyond that. So the question is, if you get 1%, 2%, 4%, can you be over $100 million of net revenue a year? If the answer is yes, you can become a public company. And yes, you can be a fund returner potentially. That's how they think about it. So the second thing I'd say is, yes, trust your instinct, but do the research on market size, on the zeitgeist, on the why down, the distribution channels, and see how much you can de-risk before. Like you give me $5,000 and a Facebook and a Google login, and I can tell you yes or no if consumer idea is good right now. I can do it in 48 hours, definitively. Here's the threshold to conversion rates. Here's why it matters. So that's the second thing is mindset. The third thing is, if your assumption here is you want to be a VC-backed founder, because it's a different game. A VC now is investing in you only if they think you can be in the 1,000x returner. If you go to a VC investor and say, hey, I can create a 12% EBITDA business that grows 20% year over year for the next 20 years, they're going to be like, I don't, I'm not interested. It has to return my fund, which is a weird thing to get to know. So third thing I'd say is, if you do want to be a VC-backed founder, one of the first things you have to do, you have to understand deeply, truly, and intimately what it's like to be in a VC's shoes, how they think about investments, how they assess it, how they with the story and realize there are, there's a formula you can follow. There's a 12-point formula in your narrative. I promise you, you show that to anyone and they're like, yep, I get your business. Super easy. There is NVCA standards of how term sheets come together, of how deals come together, how your cap tables should look. If you follow it, it just reduces friction for you. Vested. There's all these things I think as an outsider, you're like, I don't understand how it works. The answers are there and it could be a massive shortcut. If you want to be a VC-backed founder, I would say get to know the VCs, get to know how it works, and it will invariably help you to do all the things you're talking about, to hire great talent, to realize you have a good company, to tell the story. So maybe those are the three things. There's a bunch of other stuff I'm sure I could go through. Hiring practice and how you operate companies. But broadly, it's one, make sure you're really ready for it. Two is know this could be a big company and de-risk your own opportunity costs. And the third is truly understand the investor landscape if you are going to be in VC and know what motivates them. Otherwise, it will drive you crazy and it's like a mystery. In this final segment, Healy will discuss how the giver mindset influences company dynamics and personal interactions. Is it a sustainable way to engage with colleagues and clients? One of my favorite authors of all time is Adam Grant. The average person, when they ask themselves, what does it take to be successful in business, says hard work, talent, and ambition. That's the golden three. And he goes, yeah, that's all true, but you're missing what is arguably equally if not more important, which is interpersonal skills. How you treat other people really matters. It talks about reciprocity models at work, which basically is that you could be a giver, a taker, or a matcher at work. A giver is... I'm going to give you with no expectation of, of anything back. And I'm just going to help you because I can. A uh, matcher is I'm going to give you some, you're going to give me something and that we're equal. That's what most people tend to do. And you have takers, which are a little more predatory. I'm going to limit my personal costs. I'm going to get as much out of you as I possibly can. And he starts off his, his book. It's called Give and Take, by the way. He says, if you look at the success pyramid, who's at the bottom of the pyramid? And the answer is givers at the bottom. They get trampled over. They get taken advantage of. That's really hard to hear. So he says, who's at the top? Is it takers? Is it matchers? Actually, it turns out givers are also at the top of the pyramid. Because if everyone else wants you to win, it's a lot easier to win. And givers tend to bring everyone up with them as they win. It's actually the only way that humanity works is if you trust other people by default. 
you can't default not trust. Otherwise, how would you drive if you didn't think anyone would listen to any stop sign or you have to trust people to do the right thing and go, I love doing this stuff. If this helps you out, I'm pumped about it. That's great. Why not? I think you're doing a beautiful thing. And I don't really have an expectation for anything back, honestly. That's a wonderful message for founders too, which is when you're making these fundamental decisions, how you set up the ownership of your company and the capitalization table, how you compensate people, how you communicate with people. If you are a giver first, everyone will pay attention. Everyone will want to work with you. People will want to be your clients, want to be your partners. And it just makes the world an easier place. And on the contrary, if you're a taker, people might get enthralled by your personality to start, but eventually they're going to figure it out and they will not want to work with you. I think Broadly, there's an operating way as a founder where you can go and you come with this abundance mindset and you're giving and you're helping other people. As long as you're careful about not oversetting yourself can be a, a real winning mindset. If you like this Spotlight episode, please leave us a review. We're just starting out, so every review really helps. Follow us on Twitter at Zipsy.com if you don't want to miss an episode. That way, you'll be able to see every time a new show goes live. That's all from us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Zipsy Spotlight.